right. Hey, good morning, everybody. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 this morning. Luke chapter 10. In just a moment, I'm going to read verses 25 through 37. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn. If not, no worries. Words are going to be on the screen in just a moment. But I want to begin, before I jump in, I uh, want to remind you, some of you were in the room at the beginning, some of you were not, that tonight is our church and conference. And tonight is a really important church and conference because we are voting on our ministry budget. We're setting our priorities. What are the things we value and we want to accomplish in the 2024 calendar year? And so we're going to be voting on that budget tonight, 6 o'clock in our fellowship banquet hall. And so I want to invite all of you who are a part of our church community, please come and be a part of that. I'm asking you personally to come and do that because it's a really big deal for us as a community. Today we're finishing up our series uh, where we have been looking at parables, the teachings of Jesus that turn the world upside down, that take conventional wisdom and show us a better way to think. And so what I want to do is read as we begin probably the most famous parable of Jesus, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So Luke chapter 10, and again, if you don't have your Bibles, just follow along as I read to us now. A lawyer got up and put Jesus on the spot. Teacher, he said, what should I do to inherit the life of the coming age? Well, replied Jesus, what is written in the law? What's your interpretation of it? You shall love the Lord your God, he replied, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your understanding, and your neighbor as yourself. Well said, Jesus replied, do that, and you will live. Ah, said the lawyer, wanting to win the point, but who is my neighbor. And Jesus rose to the challenge. Once upon a time, he said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and was set upon by brigands. They stripped him and beat him and ran off, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road, and when he saw him, he went past on the opposite side. And so too, a Levite came by the place, and he saw him too and went past on the opposite side. But a traveling Samaritan came to where he was, and when he saw him, he was filled with pity. He came over to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and then he put him on his own beast, took him to an inn, and looked after him. The next morning, as he was going on his way, he gave the innkeeper two dinars. Take care of him, he said, and on my way back, I'll pay you whatever else you need to spend on him. Now, which of these three do you think turned out to be the neighbor of the man who was set upon by the brigands. The one who showed him, showed mercy on him, came the reply. Well, Jesus said to him, you go and do the same. So, y'all, it was 2008. 2008 was my first year that I was working in a church. I had just gotten out of seminary, and I was at a small church, uh, uh, not like this place where my schedule is just constantly packed. There were times in 2008 in my first church, I mean, it was tiny, I was the only staff member, where I was just looking for things to do because I had lots of time on my hands. And I will never forget, I mean, I'd only been in ministry for a couple of months and working in a church for a couple months. And in my head, I'm like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to change the world. And if I see a need, I'm going to meet it, and I'm going to do that every single time. And, and this day in 2008, I'm driving down the road, and I see a guy who is sitting on the side of the road, and he is pushing his bicycle, and his bicycle is not in good shape. 
Now, at the time, I'm driving a 2005 Toyota Corolla, which if you were not familiar with that car, it's not a big car, okay? But I pull over to the side of the road, and I stop, and I go, yo, man, do you need a ride somewhere? And he said, yeah, I would really love a ride. My bike's broken down. And so we find a way to squeeze his bicycle into the back of my Toyota Corolla, and I, I had stains on the ceiling for the next 10 years because of the way we just slammed the bike in there. And then the guy gets in the front seat, and I said, well, where do you want to go? And he begins to start to ramble. And y'all, I'm going to tell you something. Within about a minute, I knew that I had made a really, really bad decision letting this dude in my car, okay? Because he is rambling, and he is sweating, and he is clearly not in his right mind. And there comes a moment in the midst of my conversation with him where I begin to get a little nervous because he is not in the right frame of mind. And I just asked him point blank. I said, man, can I ask you a question? Are you on drugs right now? And you know what he said? Yes, I am. <laughs> In particular, he was on meth. And if you want to know somebody that you should never let in your car and by random chance, let me tell you, it's a meth head because things got intense really quickly. And there came a moment where he went to even grab the wheel of my car. And I'm sitting there thinking like, y'all, I'm about to get in a fist fight with a meth head. And I know one thing, I don't like fighting and I'm not on meth. So I'm probably going to lose this fight. So I pull over to the side of the road and I get him out of the car after a few minutes and he goes on his way. And y'all, let me tell you something. I am freaking out at this point. I'm shaking and I get home and I'm telling Sarah the story later that evening. And she's like, Will, why would you ever pull over to the side of the road and let somebody in your car like that? Why would you do something so dumb? And the answer I gave her is something that I think we would all agree with. And here's what I told her, that we are supposed to help people in moments of crisis. We're supposed to help people in moments of crisis. That is what Jesus' people do. And so I was simply responding to the situation, Sarah. We are called to help people in moments of crisis. And how do I know that that is the case? Because I have read the parable of the Good Samaritan, because I have heard the teachings of Jesus, and I take them to heart because I'm straight out of seminary and I know all the right things to do and all the right things to say. And we're supposed to help people in crisis. And friends, let me tell you something, that is absolutely true. Now, what I am not advocating you do is leave this place and go pick up people that are on drugs. That's a bad idea. But what I am telling you is that if you want to claim to follow Jesus, all you have to do is read the Good Samaritan to understand that faith is not a spectator sport. That as we follow Jesus, we do have a call to step up and to help people in their moments of need. And when we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, that really is sort of crystallized for us. The parable of the Good Samaritan, I, I actually think it is one of my favorite parables of Jesus, and, and it is probably, maybe outside of the prodigal son, it is the most famous short story of Jesus by far, right? I mean, it, is, it has really even become so ingrained in our culture that we have things called the Samaritan's Purse. Right? The Samaritan's Purse, a ministry organization that sends Christmas presents to kids all around the world and steps up in moments of need. There's another group in America called the Samaritans. 
And they are not a religious organization at all, but what they do is they walk beside people who are thinking of having suicidal ideations and thinking about committing suicide, and they walk alongside those people. Uh, It is so ingrained in our culture. I can't even remember the number of churches that have some frame of the Good Samaritan in their name, right? The Good Samaritan is synonymous with the idea that we are called to help people in a moment of need. And it is absolutely true. I don't want to dismiss that, right? The, the, the man comes to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life, to inherit the life of the age to come? And Jesus says, well, what do you think? You, you tell me. And the man gives this beautiful answer that I think encapsulates the whole of our faith. What does he say? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. One of the things that this parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us, even before we get into the parable proper, is that if you want to claim to follow Jesus, incumbent upon us, part of what we do and part of who we are is that if we want to say we love God, then we are called to love and to serve and to be there for other people. One of the earliest followers of Jesus, actually, a guy named John, he was one of the uh, original 12 disciples. He wrote letters, three letters in particular, to churches that he had been working with and serving and and kind of driving this point home that if you want to say you follow Jesus in 1 John chapter 4, here's what he says. If anyone says, I love God, and yet he hates a brother or a sister, then that person is a liar. And according to Jesus, according to John, according to 2,000 years of Christian history, one of the things I want us to understand is that the surface level reading of the parable of the Good Samaritan is absolutely true. That if we want to live out the Jesus way in the world, and if we want to be a voice and a witness to the countercultural way of Christ, then one of the things that we will do is we will not just talk a big talk, But the other thing we will do is we will live out what we say we believe by serving and by loving and by embodying what is present here in this parable. Christianity and the way of Jesus is not a spectator sport. And the surface level reading of this story and the way that we have kind of received it as a culture ingrains that in each and every one of us. And that, friends, that is a good thing that is absolutely to be applauded. And if we stop right there, that is fine. But what I want to do this morning is I want to invite us to take the parable one step further. I want to invite us to strip away all the things we have heard about the parable and the way we've kind of become numb to its power. And what I want us to do this morning instead is I want us to think, as I've invited us to do every week, with our first century lenses on. I want us to think and to imagine what it must have been like to hear that parable for the very first time in its original context. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. A man comes to Jesus, a lawyer, uh, and he comes to Jesus, uh, an expert in the Torah, and he says to Jesus, teacher, what must I do to inherit the life of the age to come? One day God is going to return And he's going to renew and he's going to restore and he's going to redeem all things. And I, the man says, want to be a part of that. So what do I have to do to inherit, to be given the gift of the life of the age to come? 
And I love what Jesus says, right? He goes, well, what do you tell me? What do you think? And the man answers spot on. He does. He answers spot on. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, friends, one of the things we have to understand is that the, 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 the root, the lineage that we have in Judaism is right there. And it does, in fact, teach us those two things. In the Torah itself, we have multiple different passages. You are called to love God, the Shema, the greatest prayer of Israel. And in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we hear you are called to love your neighbor. You are called to love the stranger who is in your midst. See, the way of God from the beginning has taught these two incredible things. And so the man answers correctly. And Jesus goes like, great, go, go and do it. And then you're going to live. And it is precisely in this section, y'all, where the parable gets really, really interesting. Not just interesting for the first century audience, but ultimately, and we're gonna see it in just a few minutes, it becomes really interesting to us who are here in this place. Because Luke says that the lawyer isn't, isn't uh, fine to just walk away having given the right answer, but he wants to justify himself. Another way to frame that would be to say he wants to win the argument. He's in a debate with Jesus. He's in a battle with one of the most respected rabbis, and he wants to win the argument. And so he says to Jesus, and this is the linchpin in the whole thing. Yeah, I know. Love God and love your neighbor. Yeah, I, I got that. Jesus says, do it and you'll live. And that's precisely when the lawyer looks at Jesus, and you can imagine with an adversarial tone. And he says to Jesus this one question that changes the whole conversation. And here's what it is. Who is my neighbor? Jesus, yeah, yeah, great. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Perfect, good. Love my neighbor. Yeah, yeah, I can do that. Who is my neighbor, Jesus? And the reality is that when this man asks the question, he has a preconceived idea of the answer that Jesus is going to give. And not only does this lawyer have the preconceived notion of how Jesus is going to answer, but so does every other person who is sitting there and listening to this thing that is happening between Jesus and the lawyer. And what happens next, friends, is the most fascinating and compelling section. And this is why the parable can turn our worlds upside down. Who is my neighbor? And I love what Jesus does, right? The guy asks a pretty simple question. Just give me a black and white answer, right? Give me something I can write down and I can know it and then I can walk away and everything will be fine. Just tell me the truth, Jesus. And Jesus does what he always does, which is why I appreciate him so much. When he's asked a pretty standard point blank, point blank question, what does Jesus do? He goes, actually, I know you want a black and white answer, but let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. Y'all, I am going to start I, with the number of phone calls I get every week and people go, Pastor, can you tell me what I ought to do in this situation? You know what I'm going to start doing? Every single time I'm going to start going, well, hey, let me, let me tell you a story instead, right? I wonder how far that's going to get me. Pro probably, I, I actually don't know if I have the guts to do something like that. But Jesus does. Let me tell you a story. And now I want to dig into the story. Because what Jesus says is that there was a man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was going from the temple where he had been worshiping God. 
And he had been in the presence of his fellow Jews. And he leaves the temple on his way to Jericho, which is a dangerous 17-mile journey. And the story says that he fell into the hands of brigands. He fell into the hands of thieves, of robbers, of hoodlums, whatever kind of language you want to use. And Jesus says that what happens is that he is beaten and he is stripped naked and he is left, and this is a key word, half dead. So he's unconscious. He's not able to communicate. He has no clothes on. And at that point, people begin to walk past him. But before we get to the people who walk past, this is the, one of the central elements in this parable that if we want it to really impact us, we have to get it. Because him not having any clothes on, him not having the ability to communicate would have meant something in the first century. Because here's what you got to know, that people in the first century, they were known by their language we in America are a monolingual culture. All of us pretty much only speak English, but in first century Israel and in Palestine, people would have been multilingual and Greeks would have spoke Greek and Romans would have at some level spoken Latin and Hebrews would have generally spoken Aramaic, but the educated Israelites would have spoken Hebrew itself. And so part of how you would know who someone was was when you ask them a question, do we speak the same common language, right? When I run into somebody from New York, all they have to do is begin to talk to me and I realize y'all are not like me, okay, dog? It's that same sort of thing. And the man cannot speak, so they don't know who he is. And the second thing is he is stripped half, he is stripped naked and he's left half dead. And in first century culture, because there were no driver's licenses, there were no forms of identification that you would have carried around with you. So part of how people knew who you were was the sort of clothes that you wore. And they identified you with a particular tribe and with a particular group of people. And so Jesus sets up this story by saying there's a man who is half dead in a ditch and nobody knows who he is. So he maybe is part of our team. Maybe he is not. He is basically unknown. And it is precisely in that moment when two people first walk by. And the first Jesus says is that there was a priest now, y'all, in the first century, the temple was still in existence and priests were a specific sort of religious leader in the first century. And basically, they had two weeks every single year where they were charged to leave their hometowns because they lived in normal cities like Augusta, whatever that is in the first century. And for two weeks a year, they would go up to Jerusalem and they would serve in the temple. And when those two weeks were over, what they would do is they would go back home and serve as the religious leaders in their communities. And so the story says that there's the man half beaten and he is half dead and he's naked. And along walks this highly respected religious leader known as the priest. And just when you think he's going to step into action and do the right thing, the story, according to Jesus, says that the priest walks by. Now, y'all, this, this is not like a road that is super uh, wide and, and super generous in its sizing. We're talking about like Walton Way type length, you know what I'm saying, where it's really tight together. And in order to not 
touch and help this man. You have to knowingly walk by him. And the priest in this story, most likely concerned that if he touches a man who's half dead, if the man is in fact really dead, he's going to be ritually and ceremonially unclean. So when he gets home, he's not actually going to be able to fulfill his role in leading the community. And so out of an abundance of caution, probably well-founded, the man walks by on the other side. And he's still half dead in a ditch. And the second person in this story is a Levite. And a Levite, I'm going to begin to move a little quicker on this, a Levite serves as an assistant to the priest. And the priest would have gone in front of the Levite on the way home. And so the Levite would have come upon the scene with this man naked in a ditch and he's unconscious and we don't know who he is, but he's bloody and he's beaten. And the first thing he would have thought was, "Uh uh-oh, the priest didn't help him. The priest didn't help this guy, and there's probably a good reason why the priest didn't help this guy. And so, just out of an abundance of caution, I'm going to do the same thing. I don't know who he is. I don't know if he's part of my team or my tribe. And so, rather than help the guy out of an abundance of caution, I'm just going to walk by on the other side. Now, this, friends, is where the story gets fascinating. This is exactly when Jesus takes our expectations and he turns them upside down. Because in the rabbinic tradition, it is common to tell stories through the lenses of three. And you would say the first person and then the second person and then the third person. And the third person brings the story to a conclusion. And so in the minds of the lawyer, in the minds of everybody who was listening to this story unfold, they've got an idea of what is happening because you got the priest, And then you got the Levite who's his assistant. And everybody in this story would have thought they knew what was going to happen next because we're going down from religious professionals to maybe deacons in the church. And finally, we're going to reach the climax of the story because those people wouldn't help. But what Jesus is telling us, everyone thought was that the person who was going to step up in this story, do you know who it was? It would have been in the minds of everyone, just good, ordinary Jews. And every single person in this story, y'all, would have expected that Jesus said, the priest walked by and he didn't help. And the Levite walked by and he didn't help. But then guess what? Just a common everyday person, just like you Jews who are here listening to the story, you people of God, you children of Abraham, you understood the call. And you walked by and you helped and everybody would have assumed that was what Jesus was going to say. But guess what? That isn't what Jesus says. Jesus flips the script on what we expect. And now comes the climactic moment in this parable where Jesus takes our expectations and he absolutely shatters them because the priest walks by and he doesn't help. And the Levite walks by and he does not help. But in this story, what Jesus says is that there was a Samaritan who walks by and he helps. Now, we're not going to get into a lot of the detail, but suffice it to say this morning, friends, that Jews and Samaritans absolutely hated each other. This this rivalry between Jews and Samaritans, it goes back into the 500s BC. So generations upon generations of Jews and Samaritans, they hate each other. 
They would not even walk through cities that belonged to the other tribe because that is the level of animosity that they had. And so in this story, the last person that you would have expected Jesus to say is exactly the person who shows up because the priest walks by and he doesn't do anything. The Levite walks by and he doesn't do anything. But then there is the good Samaritan. And I know maybe you've heard this before, but don't let this be lost on you this morning, y'all. Don't let this be lost on you. Because for every single person that was hearing that story in its original context, the good Samaritan, you ready for this? It is a contradiction in terms. It's a contradiction in terms. The only good Samaritan, according to a significant number of Jews in the first century, was a dead Samaritan because they worshiped a false god and they claimed to be the true children of Abraham. And so when Jesus says a Samaritan is the one who stops by, the one who has mercy and he picks him up and he puts him on the back of his donkey and he leads him into Jericho and he takes care of him and he ensures that this man is gonna be okay. I don't know that we can begin to comprehend the level of discomfort that that story would have caused in the first century because the good Samaritan is a contradiction in terms. And I love what happens next because Jesus shifts his focus. Jesus shifts his attention and he's told the story and the man was wanting a black and white answer, but Jesus does what he always does. And then he looks at the gentleman and he says, okay, so hey, I got a question for you. Who, in this case, was the neighbor? Y'all, if you're not paying attention, you can get lost in this section because what the man says, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. He could not even bring himself to say the name Samaritan. And so ultimately, y'all, if you want to understand what Jesus is doing, he is taking our preconceived notions of who is in and who is out, who is good and who is bad, and he is flipping those upside down. And he looks at the man and he says, well, who is my neighbor? That's a great question, brother. Who's my neighbor? And the answer that Jesus gives in the form of a question is this. Who's the person that you hate? Who is the person that you hate? And, and recognize that they are also loved by God. Who is your neighbor? Who's the person that you could not ever imagine lifting a finger to do something good because they are the enemy? And the answer is that person, according to Jesus, is your neighbor too. Who do you hate? I didn't grow up in the church, y'all. I didn't grow up in the church and you know that. But every summer I went to my uncle Steve's vacation Bible school because he was the preacher at an old Baptist church and we sang a song, right? Jesus loves the little children. All the little children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. 
And Jesus loves the little children of the world, and it doesn't stop with being a child, but the generosity and the grace of God extends to everyone. Because I don't know if you know this, but Jesus understood every human being, point blank, bar none, is created in the image of God. And the lawyer wanted to draw strict boundaries around who is in and who is out, and Jesus does what he does. And he blows the whole thing up. Who is your neighbor? Who is the person you hate? If I can translate into the 21st century, it would be like asking a Republican, who is your neighbor? Only to find out that the answer is Ilan Omar and the Democratic Party. It would be like saying to a Russian soldier, who is your neighbor, only to hear Jesus say the Ukrainian in a story that hits so close to home. It would be like saying to the Palestinian, who is my neighbor, but the Israeli who I am currently at war with. And listen, y'all, I don't claim to be a geopolitical expert, and I know the world is messy and it's a complicated place. But don't let us ever forget what Jesus is inviting us to see, that the categories of who receives God's grace is bigger than what we want it to be. And the point of this story, y'all, is that Jesus is doing something huge. He is inviting us. Here's what he's doing. He's inviting us to see past the binaries. He's inviting us to see past the binaries that define our culture, where we want to say, okay, this person is in and this person is out and this person's my neighbor and this person is not and I hate this person and that's okay because I'm on God's team. And Jesus says, get that out of my face because that ain't the good news. And this parable invites us to blow up the binaries that we have become so comfortable with. Who is my neighbor? And the answer is everyone. And so ultimately, y'all, we can kind of wander in the ether and talk about these big political things, but don't ever forget, Jesus is addressing this question to an individual. And he was doing it then, and listen, I think, I think he's doing it now. And so the reason this parable is so powerful is because it forces us to take a deep look inside of our own hearts, if you're willing to hear it. And here's what Jesus is asking you this morning. Who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Well, and frankly, the answer is, who do you hate? Who's your neighbor? And the answer is, who do you hate? And for some of us, man, like alarm bells started going off about five minutes ago because you know who that person is. But for others of us, man, we might, not gen, we might not genuinely hate anybody. So let me frame it another way. Who is the person that when they walk in the room, your eyes start to roll? Who is the person that as soon as they begin talking, all you can think is, God, would you shut up already? Who's your neighbor? And if we want to say we follow Jesus, we need to hear this parable and hear it well today. That the invitation of Christ is to go and show them love, to go and show them mercy, because ultimately, y'all, at the end of the day, God's grace extends beyond anything we could ever ask or imagine. And in those beautiful words of 1 John, we love not because we deserve it, but we love because he first loved us. 
and gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And while we were at one time enemies with God, now we are made whole. And so we take that grace that we have been given and we show it out into the world. So the question that I'm leaving you with today, and it's going to just leave it hanging in the air. Who do you hate? And are you bold enough to go and show them the grace of Christ as we go throughout this week? And with that kind of hanging in the ether, I want to invite you to join me as we pray together. God, we are grateful. We're grateful for the morning that you've given us. It is beautiful and it is good. And God, so is this teaching of Jesus. For so many of us, God, there are people in our lives that, that immediately jump into the forefront. That God, just the, the thought of them gets under our skin. God, there are people in our hearts that when we consider showing them grace, God, we can't even imagine. And so work in us this morning as we hear this story of the good Samaritan, the least likely of candidates to go and show grace, the one who everyone else hated and he showed goodness. God, help us to hear this story of Jesus and to go out in the world and serve to go out into the world and love not just those that love us, but God, to love our enemies as well. God, you have done that for us, so may we do that to others. Be with us now as we continue to worship you on this day, God, and work in our hearts. This is our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.